This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim Thiessen. And my name is Tom Jennings. And this episode has been a long time coming, and I think we're all pleased that it's finally coming together. Craig Keller, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Most of us listeners and uh, followers of Master Cinema know you as one of, if not the, like public figure of Master Cinema. But uh, before we get into uh, Master Cinema, the label, I also wanted to talk about you because you're also a filmmaker, you're a producer. Um, you have the films of Evil Lights Production House. You also made that fate a complete film serial, as well as a, being a writer and a blogger. But could you like introduce the audience to the other aspects of your professional life? Well, first of all, uh, it would, it's definitely uh, overstretched to say Films of Evil Lights uh, Production House. It's uh, <laughs> if, it, if you just call a, it's a good name know, for it. If you come up with a. a, a a brand label for your zero budget uh, films, then uh, I suppose that's the, you, you got to come up with something. So uh, <laughs> it sounds good, but you know, someday maybe it'll, we'll actually have a, a desk and uh, a bank account, but it's, that's not, that's not currently the, the case, but uh, uh, yeah. So I'm making this serial uh, called fate accompli, which um, I originally planned to do about five episodes a year. And I think right now I'm at one episode within the last two and a half years. So the, uh, prolific, uh, output is stunning. And, um, <laughs> but it's, it's just because it's a hard time getting certain people together and, uh, you know, coordinating schedules and no one, no one's getting paid. So it's not, uh, it's, it's not a lot of people's priority, but yeah, I mean, you know, basically make it with, uh, a crew of about two people and um it's got about six or seven storylines in the the first um episode is kind of a pilot that runs for like i don't know what it's like an hour and a half or something like that but uh subsequent episodes are all supposed to be about 10 minutes and you know you're gonna go from one story thread to the next in uh you know whatever kind of order is right for that particular episode but uh so hopefully i'll be in production on on uh, second third fourth episodes in the next uh, two months or so so i'm looking forward to that but besides that i also run that blog sim asparagus which has kind of been around for like i don't know like eight years or something like that now but um mm -hmm. it's just a it's just a means of outputting some writing about film without uh, having to go through any channels and um, I think that, you know, if I want to go short or I want to go long, um, I can you can just kind of do whatever you want and I don't have to worry about an editor or word count or traditional, um, uh, article structure or anything like that. But, mm. um, what, what are your kind of, what's your like origin story? How did you get into film and started writing about film and just kind of, uh, where did your interest uh, come from? Well, it's funny that you ask that because I think the film that first really turned me into a, a cinephile, um, which is true of a lot of people, is 2001 Space Odyssey. And as we're sitting here talking, I have the TV on mute in front of me, and 2001 is playing on Turner Classic <laughs> Movies right now. So um, uh, it looks a pretty good master, too. But um, yeah, yeah, they, um, yeah they're, not, they're not using an old, uh, you know... Uh, I think it's it's got to be one of the, the 
the new HD ones, obviously. But uh, but yeah, I mean that was that was it. And and of course back then, I mean I was I was watching it on a pan and scan VHS tape, and that's no way to see 2001. But when it was 1990 or whatever it was, uh, you know that was you sort of watched movies that way all the time without thinking, or at least I did because I was I was young. Um, if I was older, I, I probably would refuse to watch VHS and only only go see things at the at the cinema. Can I, can I just sorry, can I just interject here for one second in the fact that I actually watched a VHS about three weeks ago oh, of a film of what and and I, it was it was actually seven I watched it was a pan and scan film and I was like how on earth did we ever put up with this um, yeah <laughs> I mean there, there should have been there should have been a revolution like in the eighties it's it was just absolutely horrific. It's just like, I was sat there, and I know obviously our eyes have become accustomed to HD, but I was like, how on earth did we ever, as cinephiles, ever put up with this? It was absolutely ridiculous. Well, I think I think back then, um, you know, if, if I mean, I, and I certainly wasn't old enough to know the difference either way, but I think what you did back then is you could always go, you could always go to the, go to the theater. And so you at least, and, yeah. and, and, and films, yeah. films would have revivals all the time. I mean, you know, the first film I ever saw in my life was, um, I remember clearly, it's probably my first memory, is Empire Strikes Back, and it was in its first run when it came out. It was 1980, and I think I was I was two and a half or something like that, and um, and then I saw Star Wars after that, the i.e. Episode Four, A New Hope, whatever, um, and that was its like second run or third run. It, but the, it, but it played all the time. I mean, you know, it was that uh, came out in '77, and I was probably probably saw it in '81 at a regular, you know, regular. A multiplex or whatever they called them back then. I mean, it's certainly not a revival house. It was just you would, things things played over and over, and um, so you got to see films that maybe if, even if they were old, uh, you would meaning within like the last uh, if they were color movies from the late '60s forward, they would still play regularly at least here in America um, at your at your local mall, mall shopping mall. Uh, movie theater so you always had that alternative and so maybe the that uh tamped down the uh the the revolution that never that never was but could have (laughs) happened um and i mean i remember you know i had i had star wars on um a recording from it when it played on cbs and it was we recorded it on betamax we had a betamax machine so you so you were quite you were quite well off then if you had Betamax, no, seen. because every, a lot of people had them then because it was bef- it was that moment before what was going to be the standard beta beta or uh-huh. um, or <laughs> VHS, uh, VHS. and um, we we were on the wrong side of history as it turned out. But uh, <laughs> bought a bought a, a VHS VCR shortly after. But um, but again, you know, you were it was you were still seeing the film in a four three pan and scan i mean and to this day i don't even know what the i can't even i couldn't even tell you what the aspect ratio of star wars is i think it's two three five isn't it is it a scope film or what film sorry star, st- the star wars and empire strikes back what what are their yeah it's a, it's it's a scope. Yeah. Okay. yeah it's a scope film yeah yeah so um you know obviously you, you i don't even know if you can tell i mean i haven't seen those movies in years but um clearly i'm sure lucas was framing for four three you know, as well. So, so with the exact, uh, idea of, of, uh, television. So, but anyway, so that's, that's, uh, that's my, um, first movie I ever saw, but then yeah, 2001 is what, uh, really got me wanting to make films and be obsessed about films. And, and it just grew organically from there. When I was in college, um, I had a great, uh, film teacher, 
named Don Fredrickson, and uh, I took his. I took about three or four of his film classes, and I wasn't a film major. I was an English literature major. Um, but it, the only reason I wasn't was because it, I wanted to double major, but there was no way that my scheduling on my classes could, could do both. But we watched in, in his class, I mean, um, Introduction to Film Analysis was the first one, and we watched everything on 16 millimeter. Um, and this is from 1995 to 99 is when I was in college. And, uh, he, you know, he, he wouldn't show anything on, on video. Uh, and we had a projector in the, in the uh, it was this beautiful classroom and, and uh, you know, projection booth in the back. And, and so we, we saw, you know, many, many things that way. And, and so, he, you know, essentially he introduced me to, to uh, a lot of things and got the ball rolling. And like Godard and, and so on. And the first Godard film I ever saw was Alphaville. But I, that's because I rented it on VHS from the, from the local video store. But then he came up in his class, uh, later on and, you know, Bergman and seeing persona for the first time and, uh, uh, hour of the furnaces, um, uh, Trinity Minha movies, like, uh, naked spaces living is round. I think it's called. And, uh, uh, Eisenstein. So we saw all of Eisenstein, saw strike, uh, battleship Potemkin, October, uh, general line or old and new. um, yeah, I mean those those are some of the important early films that that got the momentum going for me. What was the kind of experience like for you when you discovered these types of alternative cinema, uh, like a well that you it was a well waiting to be discovered, but what was it that made it so much more uh so much more interesting than following the Hollywood schedule? Well, it's just the fact that um it's a more personal kind of cinema. I mean, you know, you can tell that uh, someone, one individual with a crew of individuals supporting him or her, you know, made it as a, as an expression as opposed to making it as a, as a product. Now, that being said, I mean, I look at, I don't, I don't, I don't put a dividing line between, Oh, this is mainstream Hollywood cinema and this is art cinema um, or art house that I hate that phrase so much yeah um so do i yeah and, yeah Absolutely. and you know it's like i can't even understand why that like when criterion put that series out and they put out that book calling it essential art house seems like such a throwback to the to like the 1960s like like literally when like janice films had its inception in like 1950 whatever it was um that was like when you would use the term art house and it was like the like art house or what, what they, what they call in America sometimes. And, the, and the, I think the phrase is sort of dying out a little bit, but what they call hmm. uh, foreign films. It's like a, like a foreign object, you know I mean? It's like, <laughs> that's, that's so, such a, a condescending, like a horrible xenophobic, typical, um, you know, mainstream American media term or, or meme or whatever. But uh, I guess people say world cinema now, right? If they want to describe they don't say foreign films, which is so like. I mean, I, I struggle. I mean, this is something I often talk about with people when it's something I've kind of riled against for a long time. Actually, is when people have this perception of film as just being North America. Yeah. And it really bothers me sometimes, actually, when I, I kind of talk to people and they kind of. I mean, I, I, there was a debate I was kind of earwigging on a few weeks ago, and it was the fact that kind of a lot of Hollywood films now um, are clearly being made with foreign audiences in mind. Right. And like, yeah, but it's America. It's American money that goes into these films. I was like, hang on a minute, you know, film isn't this kind. Of, I don't kind of geographically 
you know, it's, it's something that kind of transcends borders, as it were. You know, just and it just it just seems people have this very narrow-minded or a kind of narrow appreciation of what cinema actually is. And I mean, in Manchester, we have one cinema which could categorise as being it shows world cinema, I suppose. And when you kind of say to people, "Oh, I'm going to the showroom to watch a film or something like that," they kind of look at you and go, "Oh, the art house place." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, just go along. You know, it shows a variety of different films. Sure. Just, it might show a documentary." Yeah, it just shows you kind of a different kind of a different type of cinema and it's, it's very it's strange to me I think people limit themselves incredibly when it comes to cinema and what they kind of will watch and what they won't watch or kind of I mean I, I get so tired of people say they won't read subtitles oh I know yet, people and, say that oh. and, it, and it's these are the people who and I've said it so many times and blew in the face it's like people who say they won't read subtitles and then they declare The Dark Knight the best film ever made <laughs> and it's like for you to make that comment yeah, those two comments means you simply haven't seen enough films, and it sounds snobby on my part, I think. But in a way, I think it's kind of justified because if you if you can say, you know, if you actually genuinely think that, I think you have a very narrow, limited view of what cinema actually entails. Yeah, I mean, it's a. I think it's a reverse snobbiness. I mean, it's snobby and stupid on their part for saying that. I mean, you know, you, you come off. I mean, of course, they're not, you're not aware, or they're not aware of it. These these straw men that we're talking about who say like, I won't read. I, won't, I don't want. I don't want to read a movie. I mean, you know, how, you know how stupid that sounds. I mean, that's like yeah. you, you just you just uh, are putting yourself down in that. Now, there are people who say that, but I mean, honest to God, if you've if you've watched enough films that have subtitles, then you after two or three movies, I mean, if you flick your eyes down and flick them up, it's a subconscious thing. You're not even, yeah. and you get you know, it says it's like breathing. You don't think of yourself breathing in and exhaling. Yeah. It's uh, that's why I don't. When I'm watching a film, I don't even recognize that I'm reading the subtitles or, or whatever. But yeah. I mean, it, it's and, and it's funny to even have to talk about this, but it is a real kind of like fundamental um, issue that cer- certain people have with um, you know cinema in languages other than their their native tongue. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have a good solution for for what to tell those people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, I mean, it's like I mean. Uh... I remember. I remember once I came home and I caught my ex girlfriend watching Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon dubbed, and I was like, "You are watching that. Reverse it. You are watching it." And it's and she was like, "I can't read. I can't be done reading." And I was like, "No, come on. You know this is. You know you have to go back to it." And, that, and it's one thing. I mean, I, I find it really like the fact that you even have dubbed film that dubbed soundtracks on foreign films sometimes i'm like god almighty come on you know what i mean this is just pandering to idiots yeah it should, it should, <laughs> yeah, it should be i mean it should be illegal in in the same way that like a, <laughs> like a I'm, I'm, i mean in a just world and i'm, I'm totally serious like in the, in the same way that like you know an author in at least in france or not in america but you know an author has quote unquote moral rights over over mm-hmm. their work and um you know movies you should you should be able to say that the the, the films has a, a has a uh, implicit moral sanctity to it that means it cannot be it cannot be dubbed or duped. Now I understand that some people uh, they um, well I mean when it's exported to that country it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be allowed but it's a common it's a common practice in in Europe even right I mean like there's mm-hmm. like oh this is the person this is the voice actor in uh, in China who does. Um, who does Bradley Cooper all the time or whatever, you know? I mean, there's yeah. like, there's those, there's those, um, an, a, a voice actor for specific actors. And it's, um, it's just, it's just crazy to me. I mean, I can't believe it's, it's still a, still a practice, but again, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're talking about 
you know, Hollywood product or whatever as a, a mass market um, export. It's a, it's a product. It's so, um, but anyway, yeah. How did you get into like Masters of Cinema? Where did that come from? Well, to take it back even uh, further, and I was going to say, you know, what my, what my origins were was I, um, I used to, uh, I used to, when I was a teenager, I was really into video games. And, um, the, uh, like, especially Japanese games and everything. And I, I, I got out of that phase probably in my, I don't know, late teens or twenties, but I had a lot of friends on the, on the internet or the proto internet, like over prodigy or CompuServe or whatever you had then. And, you know, we, we all became friends posting on message boards about, uh, um, Japanese games and everything. So friends that I had through, through that outlet, um, I later on ended up writing with at a video game magazine called um, Game Fan, which was kind of this like hardcore gamer, uh, super cultist kind of magazine that was out in America. And uh, through them, when I graduated, they had gone on to uh, to write and a few of them had gone on to write and design video game strategy guides. So. That's what I, that was like my first post-university um, occupation. And uh, I was really into design and uh, all of that stuff as well. So I, I did, I did uh, uh, graphic design on and laid out and created all these, you know, books for Nintendo games and uh, Capcom and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so it was, um, it was through that, that then I was doing work for masters of cinema and, uh, you know, mostly at the beginning, I think the first, the first title I worked on was prisoner of shark Island. I did the, uh, I think I did the booklet on that and, um, you know, I don't even go back and look at, at, at the old stuff anymore, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that was, that was basically how it ended up happening. And then as you know, time went on. Uh, Nick Wrigley, who's the founder, he was able to bring in some more help and, you know, we were putting out more and more titles. So, um, you know, I got involved with all of the different aspects of it from there. So, You mentioned that Nick Wrigley, he was one of the founders. Could you kind of take us through, like, short in short terms, the, like, startup of Massive Cinema and how it developed into what it is now? Well, it started through... Uh, Nick and I believe it was Tron Tronson and Jan Bielowski and uh, Doug Cummings and I think that was all of them but you know um, were you guys familiar with the with with it when it was before the before the uh, DVD Blu-ray label when it was the website yes I used yes, to read yeah. the Tarkovsky website yeah that's right so there was the main website which was Masters of Cinema and then there were the the um, parallel sites, which was, there was a Tarkovsky, there's Bresson, Dreyer, and Ozu, I think. And um, that was, that was sort of the, now those four sites were more um, archival uh, spots, along with, you know, news on upcoming DVD releases or restorations or whatever was happening with, uh, with uh, pertaining to those filmmakers and the films. But Masters of Cinema was, was a hub website that, you know, had a lot of news about <clears throat> DVDs from around the world that were coming out or special screenings and, um, you know, any, any kind of like film related news. And what was, why that, 
was unique at the time was, first of all, compared to a lot of other sites, it had really great design. I think Nick did that. And then also it was because there was no such thing as, as, uh, as blogs yet, or it was such a nascent form that it was kind of a proto blog. And so, you know, when, when things got updated, it was all being done in HTML and, uh, you know, there was no such thing as, as Twitter, obviously, or, um, RSS feeds to kind of collate all this stuff. So it was, it was sort of a, uh, uh, it, it did have an intrinsic value because, um, it, you know, no one else was able to easily just, you know, throw an article up somewhere or, or put together this, this and that news and DVD Beaver came parallel with that. And, and so it was, there was kind of a nice, <clears throat> a nice relationship between, between both of those sites in terms of, you know, people keeping their eye on the ball in terms of what was coming out and, and what like people's most anticipated DVD or films that were not available on DVD were. And, and, uh, all of that so but but that's but that's so that's how that was masters of cinema and then um uh nick started doing work for eureka i think he approached ron benson <clears throat> who's our, our president and um you know kind of pitched him on the idea of well you've got you've got uh you know geez you're, you're putting out these great films from you know the ter- terrific masters at the at the time of let's say uh um fw murnau stiftung or or uh um, you know, uh, what else, what else was there? Like, or, you know, I mean, uh, let's say Black Hawk films or, or whatever. Um, and saying, well, you know, you're, you're putting these out, but, uh, look at what, you know, check out what Criterion are doing and the, the effort and everything that goes into that. And so, um, yeah, Ron just took a, took a chance on it. And, and, uh, that's what, uh, that's where, uh, that's how the whole thing started. And it just, it just went from there. They, they, the two kind of joined forces in 2006 or seven, wasn't it? It was, I want to say late Oh four or early, okay, or yeah. early Oh five. I can't remember, but the first release was the Holy mountain. Um, yeah. and I think the second release was Mikael by Dreyer. Right. Is that right? Uh, that's number three, I think from what I can recall. I yeah. think I had that DVD. Um, yeah, I can't remember now. I can't even remember the, uh, <laughs> so going back so long, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, that's how it all started. And yeah, then there was mm. the other, other early ones like, uh, Faust and, um, mm. you know, uh, I'm trying to think what else there was uh, a lot of the, Oh, the uh, Teshigahara films, they were really early, um, pitfall and face of another, uh, yeah. And then Eureka took hold of the, kind of master cinema label completely in 2008 uh i can't remember what year it was but i want it was 07 or 08 i think yeah so yeah that's that's what happened so i mean you know essentially we we are we are eureka um but we're like a label inside of eureka but i think we're the the bulk of eureka's output pretty much at this point i mean you know we do the occasional what we now brand as eureka classics uh but uh Essentially, you know, the, the bulk of, of Eureka's output is, is MOC. You produced the Master of Cinema alongside John Robertson and Andrew Utterson, is that correct? Yeah, well, Andrew no longer um, works with us. Uh, he's, okay. He's, um, he's a professor, and so it was just, uh, you know, he, he was devoting a lot of time. And he, Andrew lives in America, 
uh, now. And uh, John, yes, I produce alongside him, and then Kevin Lambert as well, who's who you know has been a long time uh, stalwart uh, employee at at Eureka. But I mean, he he's really heavily involved in all the releases, and uh, you know he, he uh, has basically gotten more involved over the last couple of years on on all the projects. So essentially, we're a, a three person producing team. I mean, we, we kind of all work on the, the projects together and back stuff back and forth and, uh, kind of all pitch in on like every aspect. So it's a, it's a good team. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because if, um, listeners have been following like each release, they can see that you've been a contributing writer to the booklets, but from what I gather, you're also handling some of the covers and like the physical presentation of the film. But what do you kind of do in at MOC as a producer? Well, what I do in, in general is I'll be involved in acquisitions um, a lot of times. And so I'll go to festivals. Uh, Kevin just recently went to this uh, most uh, the Berlin that just ended and, um, you know, do the cover artwork, uh, do the sleeve layout do the design the menus that go on screen for for the blu-rays and the dvds uh edit the booklets write a lot of the blurbs although i think that when when press releases come out the 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 text on them is is similar but different to the actual uh the, the language that's maybe on the website and on the actual back of the sleeve itself because i think that there's press releases that get put together that are posted on the, on the Facebook page and the writing it's, and I don't, I don't write, I don't write them, but I do the, the other, uh, the other um, language that actually goes on the website and it's on the packages itself. And John uh, writes them as well sometimes. Um, and what else? Uh, yeah. The disc artwork, um, and I do a lot of translation as well. Like if, if there's something from French or German, uh, I'll work on that. So uh, that way we get to, you know, uh, expand the, the birth of um, the kind of uh, critical output that's, that's uh, around any one film. Um, so it's not just, we just limit it to uh, English, but um, so that's, that's sort of the, so that's sort of what, being a producer means in the context. Of, I mean, in every different occupation or, or uh, branch of the arts or whatever, producer has a different a different meaning. You know, movie yeah. movie producer, uh, hip hop producer, um, <laughs> you know, DVD producer. It's it's all uh, it's all. I could just I could just tell us a little bit about the process that goes behind you. Know, actually, kind of when you kind of find a film and you want to kind of pick it up for release you know what the kind of process involves and do you kind of like kind of get together as a group and sort of say that you know i think it should be this one or you know and kind of all have a kind of sit down and a bit of a chat about it well there there's a, a few different ways it comes about sometimes yes we will actively say you know we want we want to put this film out and we approach the the rights holders and see if we can either have them do it ideally i have them pay for a scan and or restoration or we put in money for it or we gather together with a few other licensors from around the uh the globe and we all we all chip in if we if we were interested in um putting it out in our respective uh territories um 
so that's something that happens sometimes. But it, what happens as well is, you know, you, you, you find out that a, a, a restoration is um, has just been available or there's a new, um, you know, a new scan has been made and there's a there's a new HD master or so on. And um, then you, you you try and get in and, and grab that if it's a film that, you know, is something that we're we're interested in. And, um, and, you know, and then there's, there's, we've had long time, uh, uh, allies who are, um, uh, who are, um, different production companies or, um, and they say, they just tell us what, what they're working on all the time and what's available. And we, we just always have a relationship with them where we're pretty much going to license everything they do or, or, you know, a lot of, of what they, they make available. So that's sort of the way that it, it works. Now, this is, this is all, of course, a lot of this is completely contrary to the idea that some people have that, oh, the reason that, a, the reason why a film isn't out is because it's being suppressed. You know, it's a, it's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a political, it's a political move. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's certain people who write columns about this and, you know, saying uh saying well you know fuck the dvd companies they they're 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 refusing to to put this masterpiece out that's not been available for and nothing could be farther from the truth i mean i don't know who they think we are sometimes but we're like these (laughs) you know dr mabuza uh plotting in in the back but it's it's uh it's really what's happened is that there's the you know licensors are either demanding, you know, it's, it's some, some widow has the rights, some film, filmmaker's widow has the rights to a, to a picture and is demanding, you know, she's not going to give the rights out for anything less than 135,000 euros. And um, other times there's just absolutely no suitable elements to, to make a proper scan or there's a, you know, if a, a, a film may just be, um, uh, hard to find any, any elements uh, at all. And, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole panoply of things that like, for a reason why, you know, your favorite film isn't, isn't available. And also just because, you know, sometimes as, as you know, how it is with us or with Criterion or, or with whomever is we've got a backlog of so many films that, um, you know, when we sign a contract for something, we've got to get, we need to get the film out as, as quickly as we can after, just so we, we just so the months aren't ticking away on our, you know, whether it's a seven year contract or eight year contract or five year contract, um, you know, so that we can maximize our, our, um, you know, our, um, our money on that, on that particular, on that particular license. Now, sometimes you're able to make a deal where you say, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll buy this film, but we, we don't want the contract to actually start until, you know, we're able to the month that it's, that it, that it's released. And you know sometimes licensors are are um, amenable to that, so you know it's just part of the the deal making and everything that goes into it. But uh, but yeah, in terms of the uh, the suppression conspiracists, uh, I think that that's that's just it's total bullshit. So wasn't the 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 World Cinema Project wasn't that one of those where the widow was like uh, withholding uh, a film or something? I think I read something about that where the the rights <laughs> kind of fell together. Um, well, I, I, well, you're, well, you're talking about Edward Yang and, and Brighter Summer Day. And that's something yes. that's, um, uh, 
there are there are certain issues around that, and my understanding. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily making an allusion to that or anything, but but um, my understanding there is that may have been worked out now, and okay, and that and and not even just I I know certain things about that, but I can't I can't go into it, but I, I would just say that it might be that might be worked out, and. Um, you know, it's something that we're always talking about with them. And I mean, we have a, a great relationship with Kent Jones and, um, you know, uh, uh, Cecilia in, uh, in Italy, who's uh, very involved with it and, uh, in, in Bologna. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, we'll, we'll see, but, uh, but the, the world cinema project is, um, well, you, you know, it used to be world cinema foundation and now it's the world cinema project because it merged with um the film foundation so they're both obviously they're both under the aegis of of scorsese um so there's there's just some logistical and bureaucratic stuff that's going on there that um i I think are the reasons why you're you're not you haven't seen as as many releases from from us or from criterion about that although you know of course that's the plan and we we hope to to uh to do more but um uh yeah and uh and there's there's also issues that some of the some of the films are um well one film in particular for example <clears throat> it would be fine for it to come out in in America and even though we're the World Cinema Project quote unquote official um partner in the UK that film it's it's print that it was rest- that it was restored from and everything belongs to the BFI, and so so what I'm, I'm talking about is is uh, Manila in the Claws of Light, which is a, a supreme masterpiece. And I mean, when I saw it at, at Cannes uh, two years ago, I mean, I was it, I was just blown away. I mean, it's like four hours, um, and uh, it's Lino Branca's film, and. It, it was just one of the greatest films I've ever seen. And, it, and, you know, that would have been one of the ones that, you know, we also planned and maybe we, we still, we still uh, would is do even like standalone releases and, and still branded as world cinema project. But um, like, for example, if we, if we end up doing brighter summer day at some point, I think that wouldn't be part of a box set. That would be a, a standalone release. Um, so, but there's, there's issues like that that come up with every film. And, and in the case of, um, you know the uh, um, some of the some of the films uh, there were there were issues that some, there, there was a the, they had the rights to do a reconstruction and to make a make a new print and present it at Cannes or present it at Venice or whatever, but not necessarily they weren't granted the rights to ever license it as a video release or or VOD or whatever. So those were things that were being worked out in the early part of world cinema foundation before they were considering that yes, there would be DVD partners and there would be. So, um, there's a few uh, different legacy things, um, uh, like that. And, um, the, uh, and also the, in the case of, um, uh, the, uh, two Egyptian films by, um, Shadi Abdel Salam, Night of Counting the Years, and um, which is also Al Mumia, and, uh, and there's a short as well that they they uh, that World Cinema Project did, and um, that's called the uh, uh, 
it's uh, what's the name of it? It's um, oh, this this was it. Yeah, it's uh, Al Fala Al Fasi. But I forget I forget what it's actually I forget what it actually translates <laughs> to. Um, but that is um, these films are masterpieces. The problem is that when the Arab Spring happened, the people who were involved kind of disappeared in in that country. Now I think that oh, they've, wow. they've gotten back in touch with them. But you know everything in, in Egypt was, uh, you know, needless to say, was chaotic for a long time and. Um, and because a lot of these films come from, you know, countries that aren't "quote unquote" superpowers, um, that the bureaucratic systems and the archives are um, either non-existent or extremely um, poorly funded, or are only like one and two, one or two people in a in an office as you know their their national uh, uh, film overseers. So it can it can be. There's a lot of um, things that, that go into the uh of the films that are that world cinema project deals with and so it makes it it makes it especially tricky um putting those out when you when you do find a film um how much of a democratic process is it do you all like agree that this film needs to be put out or do one of you trump your own opinion through and just get your way no, I think I think we're pretty much always on the same on the same page, and maybe even if, if a film isn't a, a favorite of one of ours, and, and where one person likes it more than the other, I mean, I think we pretty much um, recognize that. All right, you know, it's a, just a matter of personal choice, and there's there's people who really value this film, and um, and you know, I mean, so you sort of do have to look at it in terms of a a, a programming. Um, a thing. I mean, I, I wish we could. I wish we could do you know twenty films a month. We just don't have the the capacity to do that. But that's why I always envy cinematechs and um, revival houses and and uh, festivals because they can they get to put together you know like Film Forum in New York, for example, would be like you know we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do all of Orson Welles and we're gonna just have a, a month where, and now there's a, a lot of work and a lot of negotiate negotiating that, that makes those things happen. But, um, you know, even though you're not getting something that you can own and rewatch a million times, I think it's great that, you know, they're able to do, you know, a complete William Wellman or something like that. And these films, you know, with like 78 films and just have it all there, even if the stuff is only screening like one time or like a Ruben Mamoulian uh, retrospective. I mean, where you can just see everything and uh you know a lot of that stuff will never um well i guess never say never it'll never come on dvd or blu-ray but uh at least now um if people can buy or have access to a whole library or libraries of of um films catalogs they can just throw it up on 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 demand in hd or not even hd if it's not available and um, you know, I mean, and as you know, I mean, that's what Criterion have been doing with, uh, with, um, a lot of directors through their Hulu channel. Like for example, I mean, they just, <clears throat> I just became aware that there's three or four Jacques Demy films that they have up on Hulu that, that, that I don't know, maybe that maybe they'll put them out at, at some point, but they're not, they're not in the essential Demy box set, you know, and, uh, like Pied Piper and, uh, a few other films, but, uh, 
you know, at Probably, least, uh, at least on a clips box set called uh, the inessential Jack to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know that's see, when you say the essential, when you name the thing, the essential Jack to me, yeah. are you saying that the, the <laughs> other ones are inessential? Or for example, it's like the only reason model shop is not on there is because I think, um, I think was, there's like rights issues or it hasn't been, or there's like no restoration for it. But I mean, <laughs> that's as essential as, uh, you know, any of those, uh, other films, um, and it's, I mean, that's an incredible box set, by the way. I mean, it's, it's nice when you can do the complete, though, like the complete Jacques Tati. I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the dream. Or, you know, the, this thing that I have sitting next to me from Potemkin in, in France, the complete Eric Romare. Well, it's not, I think it's 98.5% complete, but uh, that's fantastic. Or the complete Joao Cesar Montero, which uh, came out in Portugal like, uh, like what, eight years ago or something and cost $250 or euros and had, and had subtitles in, uh, French, well, in Portuguese, French, English, German, Italian, um, Spanish on every film and on every supplement on the film. And there's like, you know, a good 45 minutes to, uh, an hour and 20 worth of sit down, interviews on every disc of that thing it's it that's a that boggles the mind and, and the re, the only reason that was able to come out of course was was uh the government chipping in money to uh, uh as a cultural initiative so that that's how that happens but <clears throat> you know so as much as i'd like to do com- the complete roberto rossellini um that's that's not uh, it's not looking <laughs> too promising you mentioned before that you uh add your own or sometimes you add your own subtitles to the film. How much of a finished product do you get when you acquire a film? Do you do your own? You don't do your own restorations, correct? Mm, no, but we'll we'll um, well we in the past we have on a on a, a couple uh, a couple of things we we've done some some like touch up work, um, and then of course in the in the, the case of um, Passion of Joan of Arc, that was something that that we initiated to create that that uh, that scan but for the what what you end up getting i mean it can vary from release to release at the very least you get your your hd master of the film and um then you have to you either bring somebody in to do the subtitling and the spotting of the subtitles which means you know the 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 in time and the out time and the duration for how long the subtitle appears on screen and uh other times um uh, they'll 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 give us a a, a list with with all the you know in English of of all the subtitles so so we can hand that over to, or, or fix it up a little bit uh, and give that to the the people at the authoring house who we work with to do, that do the the subtitling so um, and other and then you know you 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 receive a, you receive high resolution production stills or any, anything that the licensor has on hand. Um, because when, when they, when, if they own a film, it's, it's not just a master. They have, they have a lot of things like those stills specifically for, um, publicity use or licensor use to, to, to help exploit, you know, the film. So you receive kind of a, a, package with all that or then if it's a hollywood film you also get all the the legalese and all the stipulations that come along with it too or you know you've got to put this billing block um on the back and it and or this has to be um 
this has to be this size in relation to this, or the director's name can't be larger than the the star's name, or or you can't say a film by, you have to say directed by, or uh, there's all different kinds of things that that can come up like that. So, you know, we we have to um, we have to abide by that uh, some t- in some situations, and, and so does Criterion. So, um, and I think a lot of I think they they've discussed uh, before, or the designer did. You know, when they put out when they were putting out White Dog for the first time, um, uh, which is a, a Paramount film. Uh, you know, they had they had that original artwork, and then the artwork had to change. At the last minute, because <clears throat> you know, uh, someone stepped in from the legal department and, and pointed out some stipulation, and uh, so that's what happens sometimes with with uh, big studio films. But you know, for the most part, it's pretty, it's it's reasonable. But hmm. um, uh, before and when he talked about Nick Wrigley approaching Ron Benson and telling them to look to Criterion. How much has the market changed since you began in terms of these types of boutique labels? Because there's much uh, much bigger proliferation of these nowadays. A proliferation of... Of, of boutique labels and people putting out these niche, um, niche series of films. Well, the fact is that there is, there is a market for it and... Um why I think maybe you see boutique labels um, uh, rising up um, a little more now than maybe 10 years ago is just uh, because, um, because how can I put this? As you're aware, a lot of the, the, um, the studios, let's say, you know, whether it's Warner's or, or MGM or Fox or, you know, they, they, um, they kind of got out of the 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 catalog uh, film business because I, I, I they, they they could still make money on it. They're still making money. It's just a matter that uh, shelf space tended to go away in mass market and big box outlets, which is which was as important for them as uh, let's say online shipping and you know for boutique labels. The reliance is well. You're not going to get in most countries. You're not going to get uh, shelf space in a brick and mortar. You're going to, you, you know, your your huge lion's share comes from online uh, online ordering. So for the since uh, that doesn't really jibe with the studio's business plans, and I think also they um, even if something's profitable, their their margins were not large enough that they could keep um, that, that their shareholders would find it a worthwhile invest, investment. Whereas for boutique labels, the, those margins are perfectly acceptable. And, the, and our whole business model is based around those films and those margins. And, uh, you know, essentially, you know, you could have like a studio X say, well, you know, geez, we only made, uh, we only made 30 million in, uh, we we made thirty million in revenue, and we made, uh, you know, we we made uh, ten million in in profit on on uh, our DVD division. And they say, well, that percentage is not is not. We need we need larger margins. It doesn't matter if we made money on it. So let's let's get out of that business 
and put the money into some other, you know, bullshit. So that's that's why I think you're, 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 you've seen more of a rise of the the boutiques and uh, less so with uh, uh, you know you're not you're not you're not seeing you're, you're, well you're, of course you're seeing the manufactured on demand discs from yeah. and uh, I mean I, I think the thing about kind of boutique labels as well is that I mean I noticed last year in fact the past couple of years the amount of films I buy on Blu-ray has, has decreased quite dramatically. And the ones that I do tend to buy do be tend to be from boutique labels. And sometimes even when I'm buying these films, I'm, I'm kind of buying them as a kind of way of like, you know, especially Criterion and, and Master Cinema and, and labels like that. Because anyway, I kind of see it as well. Like if you're buying it and you're supporting them, then you are going to kind of be putting back into the pot as it were so you can get more films in the future. And I think chatting to a lot of people who, you know, consume a lot of kind of Blu-rays and stuff like that, um, it, it, it does seem to me, I, I've noticed kind of a, a trend recently where a lot of people have that same kind of mentality. Um, I'm sorry, meaning, meaning what, that if, if you, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, if you do put a buy criterion label, you know, and a master cinema, you are basically trying to, in a way you're kind of supporting kind of more restoration work to be done and more of these kind of obscure films to kind of come to the full and be available to buy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if your if your budget is, is, you know, X amount for, for films on, on Blu-ray or DVD and, you know, you've got a library at, at home that, you know, you contribute to. Um, <laughs> it's it's better all around if you use that money to support us or Criterion or Second Run or whomever you know. I mean because because uh, you know our 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 sales and our the you know the amount of quote unquote units that we that we do of any one title. I mean that's what determines whether we're going to do something by that director again or whether we're going to do something by. Um, or, you know, that we can, we can go in and make a, a deal of this amount and, uh, and with this company and, you know, get that film or put the money into a scan or a restoration of that film if it doesn't exist. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely, it's, uh, definitely every, every bit helps, you know, which is. You mentioned that you you like needed smaller margins than the bigger uh, bigger companies, but surely you do have some kind of thinking where you are you're certain that a certain kind of film that will hit a wide audience, so perhaps that will um, make um, make it possible to release this more obscure film, for example. Oh, absolutely. You mean you mean that if if we do something that's uh, uh, like Metropolis. Well, sure. I mean, Metropolis is, is is a perennial seller for us. I mean, it, it does it does fantastic. Um, but you know, I mean, let's say even uh, something that um, I don't know. What would another example be? Let's say like an American film. Um, you know, something that that's uh, well. Let's even say um, Double Indemnity. Or something. Sure, exactly. Double Indemnity. I mean, I mean, you know, every film we put out, we put out because you know, we, we love it, but there are certain films that you, you know, are, are going to be, are going to be big, um, bigger sellers. And yeah, that, that allows us to every once in a while say, all right, well, we can do this smaller film or we can, you know, put out something like Bakumatsu Taioden, for example. I mean, you know, which nobody knew, I mean, cinephiles knew about it because we'd always be, you know, we've been reading about that film for, for, um, years just as like, oh, there's this film and it's always in the top of Kinema Junpo's, uh, best ever or whatever. And, and then, you know, uh, 
I can't even remember now what happened there. If we had them make the HD master, um, I don't remember. Everything blurs together. It's, it's, we've put out so much stuff now, but, um, that was something that, you know, by, by putting it, by putting even a film out within our series or if Criterion do it, whether it's through their main, um, label or through Eclipse, it's kind of telling people like, Hey, this is something, even if you haven't heard of it, you know, we, that you should see. I mean, it, it, there is a, an implicit recommendation that comes with, with everything we put out. So, um, uh, yeah. I wanted to, um, touch on the, uh, the format, um, the format changes that have been, uh, throughout, uh, Master of Cinema's history, um, especially because of the, the fire that happened a couple of years ago. Um, it seems that that changed your way into, like, putting a divide between Blu-rays and DVDs. Before that, you were doing dual-format releases, and after that, I, I seem to remember that coinciding with that fire, you decided to split up Blu-rays and DVDs and not do dual-format. Will you return to that uh, later on? In, um, will we return to... Uh, sp- dual-format releases. Oh yeah, yeah, probably. But uh, but I'm, what I'm asking is, what were what, what the kind of thoughts behind splitting up uh, DVDs and Blu-rays? Did the fire contribute to that decision, or was that something you were planning? Or no, I think I think there's it's it's always a we're always trying out um, different things to see what works best, and and so you know it's kind of like uh, uh, like waving in the wind. Sometimes it may it may appear, but but we're just really you know. We, we get we get certain market feedback and and um, you know try to adjust and do what makes sense. Um, I mean, you saw it happen even when Criterion like they finally went dual format and now they're not. Which the the, the issue with with the only the problem with that and you know I, I I don't know what the exact thinking was in in terms of why they stopped doing it, but one issue that happens in America is the few places that are still brick brick and mortar and and exist and put, you know, have like, for example, Barnes and excuse me, Barnes and Noble. And they've got uh, a whole, you know, every, you go into any Barnes and Noble and there's like, there's like action, sci-fi comedy. And then it's like, (laughs) then they've got the criterion collection. Like that's its own section. But what happens is now if there's a a separate DVD uh, edition and then there's a Blu-ray edition or even, you know, even on older titles where before they even went, uh, dual format at one point uh barnes and noble will just order the dvd thing so they're like oh here's the new releases here's um uh you know oh here's the tati box set in dvd you know and because yeah. uh, because the that's i'm right in saying that that's not a that was never a, a dual like the uh the demi thing is dual format but the tati one is is either or correct like with criterion i seem to remember yeah yeah, so you know they get one copy of it, and it's the DVD edition, and you're like, ugh, come on. So that's that's one that's one issue. I mean, when it's online, it doesn't matter because you you say, oh, I get the Blu-ray or get the DVD. But um, but you know, older like we're not so savvy or so discerning customers may just go on Amazon, type in the title, hit enter, and the DVD comes up first. They just click it and. You know, if that's the case, they probably can't even tell the difference between a DVD and a Blu-ray when they're when they're watching it. So, or why, if they were seeing it side by side. Um, 
but that's those are some of the issues that like come up with 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 all of that um i, I just think it's you know th it's also so it's relatively it's relatively cheap to look, manufacture a dvd much more so than it is a blu-ray um you know and uh but nowadays, of course, also Blu-ray manufacturing has has come down quite a bit, and so has the authoring for that because, uh, you know, time goes on and and, and uh, prices drop. So, and it must be it must be like a um, a benefit for you to do a dual format where you don't have to consider a separate DVD for, um, design and a Blu-ray design where you can all just pack it into one package. Yeah, just I mean that's it. That's it. That's kind of a. a a, a small thing though. I mean, to do, okay. to do it's just to do the, the, the different, I mean, what, what, what it does cause an issue with is if you've got the cup, you you know, you, you designing the cover art and then on the, um, I haven't really figured out how or, or compared side by side to see how criterion do it from the two different sizes. Cause they always seem like kind of identical, but like for, in, in, in our case, you know, you, you're dealing with, a uh, another inch or so on the bottom of, uh, of a, uh, or not a, an inch, but like half an inch or whatever it is at the bottom or at the top of a, of a DVD cover that's not there on the Blu-ray. So it's either going to be dead space or you're going to chop off a, a, an element of the artwork on the, on the Blu-ray cover because it's shorter. So, you know, it's, it's, that's definitely, um, why it's, it's best just to have one format. So you go onto the, you go into the, you know, the ratio of the, of the cover without having to, compromise uh you know on another format hmm. um in the past you've been pretty regular with the announcements coming every quarter uh but in the last uh in the last year or so we've been seeing a change where announcements have been kind of made on the fly or at least whenever you feel like the time is right to announce it well that that really comes to uh i mean i have a little bit of say in it but uh Steve uh, Hills, who's our um, our uh, main uh, publicity man, he uh, you know he he sometimes you know he gets he gets different feedback from from different people, and sometimes on it's it's good to do a whole uh, a chunk for every quarter, and then you know said so, well maybe it'll be more effective, or you know uh, if we do it more frequently, maybe for every month, and I think that. Right now, we're not on a completely regular schedule, but um, in terms of like how we're doing the announcements, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it's I'm fine with it, kind of like either way, um, you know, either either you get you get a lot of titles all at once, or you get to sneak them out one by one and keep keep it more regular and keep people, um, you know, uh, kind of having something to look forward to. Um, I just I just find it strange though because. Like often, if we do an announcement <clears throat> and we do it, you know, through Twitter, and say like, "Oh, we've, we're we're putting out um, these films," like let's say, for example, the uh, some of the mo recent ones that are coming out soon, like uh, the Offense and, and Pick Up on South Street, or uh, you know, Fellini Satiricon. Well, I think we we announced them all on Twitter months ago, but then when the artwork comes out bit by bit, because so sometimes we'll have the artwork ready, and other times we won't have it ready yet, but we'll do the announcement. Then when the uh, press press releases come out one by one, but we for, it's for stuff we've already announced. But I guess a lot of people just, you know, there's still a, a good bunch who either don't follow the Twitter or don't uh, 
check out online because they'll be like, holy shit, Pickup on South Street's coming out. What? And they're like, I have every MOC. But it's like, yeah, but just don't you follow us on Twitter or whatever. I mean, we already we announced it like two months ago, but which is cool. You know, either way, it's like it's hey, um, that's that's it's fine with me if somebody's excited and but just hasn't happened to know. But uh, I, just, I just think it's funny. But um, so anyway, yeah, to answer the question, um, it's uh, there's there's no rigid uh, system to it or, or if there is, it can always change. So that's all. A few years ago, um, we were talking about getting this episode ready, and I remember you mentioning that you just missed out on Upstream Color. Uh, oh, right. To get from 2012, is it? I think. Yes, I think so. But thinking back about all the films that you didn't get a hold of, what kind of sticks out in your mind? Which one? Well, uh, Upstream Color, the, the only reason... I think that we didn't get that was because it was already pre-sold. It was pre-sold pretty quickly in the UK. Um, around the time maybe it just premiered and I hadn't even seen it yet. I, and I, I don't think I, um, I don't think I see, I didn't see, I actually didn't see upstream color until can, even though it was, it was around, it was, I saw it in, at the marketplace in the, one of the marketplace screenings. Cause at, at can, you know, you, you, if you're a buyer, it just, which is what we go in, you know, as our our accreditation. You know, you get to go to the marketplace, and that's where all the the licensors have their their um, their stands and their booths. And I mean, it's just it's just massive. And uh, um, there's also theaters within there that only buyers can get in. So they'll they'll play stuff on one screening that maybe isn't playing at the festival, but has played at South by Southwest or has played at Sundance. So that if the rights are available. And, and usually, you know, the, license, the licensor is, is there for world sales. You know, they, it's so that potential buyers, can, potential licensees can see, can see the film and, and decide if they want to pick it up or not. So that's how I, I, I was, you know, I had a gap in between meetings and Upstream Color was playing and I'd heard great stuff about it. But it was only when I saw it. I mean, for me, at least, that's one of the greatest, <clears throat> and, you know, people can disagree, of course. It's just my opinion. But I think it's one of the greatest American films. And especially of the last uh, 10 years or so. And, um, and uh, yeah, and then by the time I saw it, and we, we, we made an inquiry right away, and it was, it was already been sold maybe like a month or two. So other films that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's certain films that maybe, yeah, we're not, quick, we're not quick enough on, but that happens to everybody. I mean, it's not just, uh, it's not just us that you, oh, you find out, oh, my God, this is available, or, or you just see a film for the first time a while after it's maybe, maybe a month or two after it's out and you, you know, you're too late, like in the case with, with upstream color. But, um, which I wish we would have done that because if I remember the, the, the artwork is terrible on the, in the, in the UK edition, yes. isn't it? Doesn't it have like, like five stars all over it and all this, all that yeah, publicity. Yeah. No, crap? It's one of those, it's one of those look at us. We got loads of good reviews that spat them all across the, yeah. Off the cover of it. Well, Sh- Shane Carruth, um, did the uh, in the the U.S. Um, edition? I think he did the artwork on that, but I think it's an overhead shot of him and Amy, Amy Simons. Yeah, but the, but it's it's not it's not really a. It, I, I suppose it's an enigmatic image, but it doesn't really give you any sense of like the the breadth and scope of that. Have you have you guys seen that film or? 
Yes. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, I absolutely love Upstream Color. Yeah. And it's one of the it's one of the rare films that I've seen in where a, a film's ended. And I had it this uh, last year with Under the Skin. Oh okay. Um, and I watched that, and then it was one of the rare films I've ever watched where I could literally I, I watched it again like the next day, and I don't normally do that. You know, sometimes like with a film when I watch it and I really love it, I give it a bit of time before I go back to it. And Upstream Color, I felt compelled to go back to watch it, and I, it's it's one of those where it just gets better every time I watch it. Yeah. And I think I think I just enjoy it even more. And it's, it's strange because I think it's so enigmatic. I know some people have seen it and just like this is an absolute. I don't get it. I hate it. You know, excuses. Some people find it impenetrable. And I think to me that's kind of its appeal because I sort of feel like I don't get it entirely. But the more I go back to it, the more I kind of like it, and the more I kind of unpick it a little bit. So yeah, for me, I think it's a brilliant song. Yeah, I think I think that I think it, it's it's um it's kind of over it, it's it, it's overblown in some of the writing about it about how abstract it is or how impenetrable but i think um maybe i had just enough coffee before i I saw it that i was completely wired and in tune with it but i thought i think it has a completely straight narrative i just think that it's 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 so it's so unique and it's it's expressing something so unique that it seems abstract but in fact it's um I, find, I mean, that's just my opinion. And, and by the way, I'm one of these people that when I see a movie, um, three months later, I couldn't even tell you the whole – I couldn't tell you what happens in the movie. I couldn't tell you the <laughs> plot. I need to see a movie like four or five times. So all I remember are my impressions of films and um, how, what I felt about them. But, I, you know, I couldn't even – I could kind of – I mean, yeah, I could give you a general outline of a plot. There's people who can watch movies and they'll be like – or they'll like say something to me and – it's like I'm like what what are you what are you talking about? They're like oh, you don't know that quote, and I'm like um, uh, sorry. And they're like oh, you're and you're like a film buff, and I'm like dude, what do you want me to do? I mean like that's just my brain's a sieve sometimes, but yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I mean Upstream Color is incredible, and uh, um, it's I think it's a good time for. Um, at least right now, American independent cinema. And I mean, it's always a good time for, for world cinema in general, but I think that at least in the last few years, there's been, there's been really um, amazing stuff that's been premiering at, at Sundance and South by, and obviously, you know, we did computer chess and, um, you know, and, and Bujalski's new film results has been getting rave reviews. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to, to, do you know all kinds of not just even American stuff, but like you know contemporary uh, contemporary cinema from around the world in general? I mean, I think it's a, I, I don't I don't subscribe to the idea that um, you have to wait thirty years and three or four sight and sound lists worth of mm-hmm. to come and yeah. pass before you can say something is a classic or it's like oh the test of time will tell. Well, the test of time to who? It's like there's always people who have shitty movie taste i mean and they can the the test of time it's like all right this person thinks you know um like uh i don't know like a click with will smith is like the greatest film of all time well if he if if he he sees it's not (laughs) but he if he goes back uh um you know and he sees oh he saw citizen kane 40 years ago and then he saw it again I mean, you know, that, that's not a valid opinion. I mean, if, if people who have to have taste in movies, I mean, look, I don't, I don't buy into a, a, a 
any any rigid canon anyway. But I think that if you see something and it's a masterpiece, then it's a masterpiece. Or, or it's, if it's an excellent film, it's an excellent film, and it's worthy of people's consideration. I mean, the history of cinema, as far as I'm con- concerned, is is uh, is something that doesn't just go back to you know the. Uh, um, Moss film, Soviet era, whatever. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there's films from five years ago that are some of the greatest films ever made. I think that, I think that what, what happens is that this idea that everything has to be in tens, like top 10 lists, top 100 lists yes. is, is a huge issue. Like, why don't we say like, there should be a top 511 list and because, because as time goes yeah. on, it's not yeah. that you have, you're, you're just chopping films out because of this arbitrary thing. When in fact, maybe the list should just get longer. Should it get, you know, you should add two onto the list every year and just keep, and keep growing till it's a 1,076 top 10 or, or, or um, top 10, what top 1,076 is what I'm trying to say, or, or just not even have the, the, the list to begin with. I mean, it's, um, you know, you could, I could, I could probably do a top ten films of all time from the years two thousand eight to twenty fifteen. I mean, if if I was pushed, I mean, there's films that are as great as anything. Um, I understand the the impulse to um, kind of lionize the the past to say, oh, this is a classic era or this was the. But you know, cinema is always going to be different. It's not always going to be. It's not always going to look or operate like, say, Naruse or Howard Hawks or anything. I mean, it's going to it's going to operate on, in a different way, like David Lynch or or uh, Apichatpang Virasethakul or whatever. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, that's the great thing about movies. They're just all, everything's different, but it's everything's also valid. You know, and so that's why I would love to be able to keep doing you know, contemporary films when, when we're able. And, you know, if we think that we have a chance to, um, you know, get them out there and, and, uh, you know, do, do well in the market with them. So, so I guess, uh, when you talk about, um, name or labeling something a masterpiece or a timeless classic or something, the biggest issue for me with that is that so many people nowadays seem to, have like this notion that either it has to be a masterpiece or it's a complete failure. There's no like nuancing of the films that come around these days. Either it's like you have to give five stars, or it's or it's uh, yeah a failure. Yeah, I mean, I and it's it's again, it's that like impulse to always want to rank things too. Like that's why I find you know I read and maybe you guys do too, but I read um I guess I hate I hate read I hate read Pitchfork every day. And I, um, and, and I, I can't, first of all, um, I just, I think their, their reviews are in their, the writers or at least the editorial line on what the writers, how the writers are supposed to be writing is so stupid. I think it's just, it's comical and it's, it's like self parodic and everything. But that all aside, the fact that like, you know, they, they can't give something like a 9.2 or they can't give something like an 8.6. It's like, no, 6.9. And then you read the review and then yeah. it's like, you know, they, 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 this sounds like a great album. And it's like, mm, 6.9. And I always think to myself, you know, in, in, at least in American schools, American high schools, if you got a 69 or 68 or 73 on a test out of 100, that means you're, you're, you're ter- you, you did terribly on it. That means you got a C or a, yeah. a C minus or a D plus, yeah, yeah. you know, you, 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 know, you, you want to get a, an A, you want to get like 90 and above or, or B, you know, 87. So, I mean, it's not like, 
it's not like God granted Pitchfork when, when he uh, created it on the uh, 19th day uh, that you will only have so many points you can give out per week and you must use them wisely, my my sons. I mean, it's, it's and they, like, is that why they can't, you know, um, it's just, it's so ludicrous. Like, um, and so I feel that way too. Like you were saying when people are like, Oh, it's five stars or it's three stars. It's like, just get rid of the stars altogether. And, um, I don't know, like my, my, my friend, um, uh, Emmanuel Bordeaux, who used to be, uh, the head of, uh, the Cayudu cinema, like in the, in the early two thousands to the, early 2010s or whenever the editorial board shifted and, and Kaye was, was sold. Um, he said to me, uh, that, uh, one of the, the best pieces of advice he ever got when, when he was um, about writing film, film criticism or writing about films, um, came to him from Luke Moulet, who once said that, um, you should, even if a film is a, is a masterpiece, or if it's bad, he's like, there's always, there's always, you should always have one good thing to say about a film and, and one bad thing to or one critic, you know, one critical thing to say about a film, even if it's the greatest film ever. Like, and I mean, he finds that useful. And again, there's exceptions that always prove the rule. And, um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to, to, uh, both, you know, get real excited about a movie if it's exciting or, or, uh, you know, kind of, um, if you're dumping on it, try and find like, you know, some good thing about it. I mean, I know there's, there's, there's movies that are completely um, worthless and have no redeemable qualities whatsoever, but maybe, maybe even that's a redeemable quality. The fact that they have absolutely no redeemable qualities, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of an example now. I put myself on the spot. I mean, Adam, Adam, <laughs> Adam Sandler keeps coming into my head, but, uh, but um, I don't know. I am. Um, I watched the other day. I know I tried to watch a film called Northern Soul. And it was a British film about the Northern Soul movement, and I had to kind of stop watching it, um, just because it was just like it was. After about twenty minutes, I was like, I know exactly where this film's going. I don't really like the music, and I felt really tight on it because people kind of kind of gone crazy about it over here, and I was just left completely kind of dumbfounded by it. But I, I sometimes feel like really bad when I feel like that about a film. When I, you know, I try, I watch it, I don't like it, but I can't tell you why I don't like it without kind of just saying it's rubbish right. it's kind of i think that's the art of, i think that's the art of film criticism really when you can kind of like spend you know three thousand words saying why you love a film three thousand words saying why you don't like a film. yeah yeah are the, are the charlatans on the soundtrack for that oh no no this is northern soul this was like in the 60s no, and 70s I'm, it was basically i'm just kidding uh, there was but, um, <laughs> no anyway no you're right and and just to actually to go back to luke Moulet again for a second um uh he he made a film about two years ago, and it's a short. It's like fifteen minutes long, um, and it's called Chef which in French means masterpiece, like question mark, you know. So it's it's right. a, it's an essay film that examines the very notion of masterpieces and the compulsion to to declare something a masterpiece or not a masterpiece. And it's and it's it's very it's brilliant and it's very funny, and um, like all his films and and. In one part, he he says that there's an issue of of Kaidu Cinema sitting there, and it's a like a, a recent issue from that month or whatever. And he he says he opens up. He says let's let's see what's out this month. And he opens up to the back page where they they have all the the films that are in new release or most of them, and then they all the different critics give it you know their four stars, which equals shit of masterpiece, or three stars, or two stars, or one star, or the um, the little uh, uh, 
bullet bullet which is like a bomb you know and it's and in french in french in french next to that what that means is um you know don't don't even bother like don't uh, don't waste your time but the, he he goes through he opens up he says let's see what's playing this month and he runs his finger down and, and it's it's on the column for Jean-Michel Frodon who is the other used to be the other the co-head of Cahier when Emmanuel worked there and now he's um he's the french main critic for french uh, salon i believe and um, I think he's a great he's a great critic and, and uh, uh, I, I really always love his his writing and he's a nice guy. But um, he runs his finger down Frodon's column for all the films and it's like four stars, four stars, three stars, four stars, four stars. And, and Moulet on the soundtrack goes, hmm, lots of masterpieces this month. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's um, I, someone should, someone should bring that bring that out and subtitle it. Maybe we should we should do a. Do a, a release for the fifteen minute Luke Lay film, but <laughs> yeah. Um, um, speaking about that sort of branching out to other formats or other areas of releasing, um, like a fifteen minute film or something. Do you have any? Would that be sort of a possible solution that you could do, like a web solution for shorter subjects, kind of like what? criterion are doing with hulu or something like that well with shorter subjects the the only issue there is um you know very seldom are they uh are they negotiable on an mg a minimum guarantee that uh would make sense for them to be a um a standalone release that you would have to, that you would then be charging. You'd have to still be charging a certain amount for, you couldn't just sell it for like one pound. I mean, you know, um, so, but you know, even then, yeah, for VOD, it's, a, I mean, I guess it's a possibility. What happens with shorts a lot is that you're, you know, you, you, you bundle them with, with other things, but you know, they can certainly stand alone on for online streaming or, or, or download or, or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not. I guess I'm not sure if I understand your question, but um... no, you kind of answered it. But going into like the possibility of Master Cinema moving into something along the lines of VOD or a partnership with a streaming site or doing something like that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we we do do VOD, and I think we're we're going to be doing more in the uh, as as time. Uh, goes on and uh you know i'm not i'm not gonna go into it now but um but yeah i mean that's that is the great thing i mean even if um like for example the what what criterion are doing with the um keisuke uh keisuke kinoshita films i mean we um we had the ability to you know grab them too because what was it it was it like was it his it was his centenary i think or something about two years ago or three years ago and so all of these um um i think i think it's shochiku who has them they're, they're all uh i could be totally wrong there um if they were they, they did tons of them in in 4k or, or in 4k and 2k and then even just um you know some were hd masters and some were um sd but it was, um, um, I mean, he made a massive amount of films and they were all available, but it was, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't go into it and say like, all right, we're going to buy all of these because it would be having to buy 30 films and you can't, um, 
even if you make a deal for a package for the package of of the films, which would be you know a, a reduced cost per per film within that, if you I mean if you broke it down that way, um, you'd still have to be like well. Do, I mean, does it make sense to like manufacture discs to sell this extremely obscure Kinoshita film, which is, you know, maybe only from an SD source and is probably a little banged up or washed out. But once you put VOD into the equation, that becomes a way to get revenue from, from that deal on those lesser films without having to pay manufacturing or authoring, you know, costs, uh, for for a disc and so that's what you're seeing criterion do with the kinoshita which is a smart thing i think and also um if i'm not mistaken they're doing it with a lot of naruse also aren't they like uh they, isn't like wife be like a rose or something is on is on their their hulu site but um and you know they, the stuff that we did in that in that naruse box set uh years ago like repast and um sound of the mountain that's all up on on Hulu from Criterion um, because, because there's probably not, there's probably not H. I, I mean, I know there's not HD masters of them. I mean, unless they were going to pay to, to have those films scanned in 2k or 4k, but there's, there's an issue with, with a lot of the Japanese films and um, in HD. And the fact of the matter is when, when they um, made HD masters of, of films in the early two thousands, a lot of them were made in uh what is it like 60i and they're interlaced. They didn't do 1080, 1080p or 24p uh, PSF. The, and, and so they spent all this money. So let's say it's a, it's a, this, this Japanese studio or this uh, company. Well, they spent millions and millions to bring this whole catalog for the HD format that Japan had as their default HD format at the time, which never became the global format. It was this interlaced, you know, thing. And it wasn't the 10, it wasn't 1080p, 24 PSF, which is what became, what became everywhere else. So if, if you, if you end up ever saying to yourself, well, Christ, why aren't there, why aren't uh, there more of, of this filmmaker or that filmmaker? That's the reason. And it's because, um, it's because perhaps those films, you know, we can, anyone can go and do a scan or find the elements and get permission from the, from the uh, licensor and work with them. And, you know, we're, we're friends with all those companies and Criterion are too. And we all have, we have great relationships with them in, in mutually. Um, but, you know, we can't, we can't afford to say, well, let's take this one thing and put all this money into, to do it ourselves because you don't have the current budget allocation in, in your, in your studio or your company to do it on your own. So we would have to do it. I mean, that's what it, that's what it comes down to, um, which is, which is too bad because of course, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it doesn't even have to be said. I mean, you know, Japanese cinema is so rich and, and everything, but, um, and, uh, um, yeah, that's, that's the, that's part of the reason behind that. Maybe, I mean, did you guys already know that? Maybe I'm just, saying oh no <laughs> what's that what's that i didn't know oh. anything no. yeah that that is part of part of the reason unfortunately but i mean then you know when there's when there's big filmmakers like if it's akira kurosawa or uh you know certain ozus i mean they're they're always they they uh they have uh that's a bigger market so sure yeah um but you know with with, with every year they do make more hd masters uh 
uh, within within the companies. They, they just they just can't do it all at, at, at a at a bulk you know at a bulk rate like they did in the early two thousands when they when they made them the the way that that is kind of not uh, very useful for. <laughs> 2015 and, and 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 for them trying to sell globally and so so people won't buy them or criterion for example will step in and and pay to have access and do the scan themselves but i mean you know criterion have incredible resources so um i guess a question that i had is kind of what lies we're talking about like future distribution and other stuff but what lies ahead for the label master cinema not necessarily in terms of specific films released, but also from a production standpoint and, and like a, a business standpoint. I think that you might see more films per month. I mean, I think they might see some months that have three to four films, but that could, I mean, that wouldn't be necessarily a regular thing. It just depends on, on how many acquisitions we have in the backlog and, and, you know, how much time we can, we can devote within our, um, our workforce to, uh, you know, giving everything the attention that it deserves. Uh, there are, there's some big titles we have and that'll be announced in, in due time. There's stuff that we're going after and including some really exciting stuff or some people will be excited by it. Um, and, uh, that's kind of almost locked up and, uh, I can't uh, can't go into it too much, but uh, um, I think also that we're going to be experimenting with a, a new format for <clears throat> for uh, uh, p- packaging on certain titles that I think is going to delight uh, a lot of people. But we're we're still working that out, so um, you'll you'll. Uh, You'll know it when you when you hear about it, and then again, if it, if it doesn't happen, I I didn't say anything, so I didn't, uh, you know, nice and yeah. late, <laughs> check and mate, yes, and so the, but um, yeah. So anyway, what what have you guys seen recently that you that you've liked from from MOC or in in the last few? I'll, I'll turn the tables now on you. Ooh, um, I think the one that's really done it for me this year was the um, show of Blu-ray. Oh. I think that has. Been, I think that was kind of like that was one. I noticed when um, uh, Criterion put it out, I was kind of half thinking it was going to come out on Master Cinema Memory just because of the DVD that was there. But I mean, going back to that, I mean, I was amazed at how one, one how good it looks and just how utterly captivating it was. Going back to it again, I mean, I think that's definitely. I think it's my probably one of my standout um, MOC releases. Probably, and, and, and we discussed it on one of the episodes as well. Um, Wings as well, I thought was an absolute revelation. Mm. Oh so, yeah, I think that was I was so I absolutely loved it. Uh, with that film, I um, you, I'd only ever seen it on uh, in little clips or bits and pieces of it, but to revisit it again, it was incredible. And it always had this reputation like, uh, oh well, it was the what first best picture winner, but but then you had Sunrise and sort of you know people would pit the two of them and like, well, this is just. Uh, one is by one of the grand auteurs of the history of cinema, and the other one is by a kind of workhorse uh, Hollywood director. But but it's it's not the case at all. I mean, Wings is a, is an astonishing film, and I think that you know Wellman is is an auteur also. But uh, his his body of work is so varied, and it's so different from Wings in so many ways. Or Wings is so different from a lot of it. It was just it was a 
a revelation. I mean, like a a technical tour de force. My God. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's an amazing film. I mean, the sound mix on it was just blew me away, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a group. I mean, literally, literally as well, which is what it's meant to do, I suppose. We have a sort of mission accomplished on that. Thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what about, um, what about you? Lucky. Yeah, for me, um, definitely uh, one of the new releases, like Two for the Road, that was um, sort of a revelation for me. And watching a character that I didn't expect Audrey Hepburn to like pull off. Mm. Um, she seems a bit more down to earth than what I'm used to watching her. Um, so that, uh, yeah, and Stanley Donan, I've, I've only watched like uh, Singing in the Rain. That's the big go-to film for me for Stanley Donan. So Two for the Road was definitely a big surprise for me. Yeah. You've, you, you haven't seen Charade? Uh, oh yes, I had, but that wasn't really, uh, I didn't quite try with that one uh, quite as much. No. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that film in about 10, 10 years or so, but I'd, I'd like to I'd like to go back to it. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, what else? I was, I was just going to ask you, you, you something else. Um, uh, like from the uh, from the? Or did you have a particular question or like a film? Oh no, it was um, it was actually it was about a film, but it had it, it was when we were talking about wings. Um, oh no, I was going to say about the uh, uh, to go back to to Showa. Um, the uh, how did you how did you what did you think about the book? I actually got the screener, so I haven't actually uh, read the book yet. You, um, you... Yeah, so I didn't actually I haven't actually gone to it yet. So yeah, I, I need to get hold of a copy of that. Uh, I, I bought the I bought the Criterion version, um, and my finances aren't really uh, top notch right now, so I haven't uh, shelled out for the uh, the big box set yet. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, the the the, the good thing too is that it's got. Um, <clears throat> Last of the Unjust on it, which which would have been would have warranted a, a standalone release by itself, but we figured we had all of the Lansman uh, Showa films, so let's let's go all out on that. And you know, I, I hope we and we probably will do some box sets with with huge books uh, going forward. I mean, obviously the the Mizoguchi one uh, had it, but that was really a compilation of all of the the booklets from the from the DVD version i think i think it's it's the complete it's the complete contents of all of that so but showa was showa was the contents from the original uh dvd release book and then you know new stuff for the for the other films which obviously we we had to do and we probably could have gone i mean 450 500 pages but i mean at some point you have to just you have to you know you have to get the thing out so that was I think I think we and you know you, you have to uh, when you when you have a book that size you have to coordinate with the printer in terms of um, okay it's going to be this many pages and they give you the template for all right well then your your spine has to be this wide so when you lay it out in InDesign um, you have to adhere to that because they're getting prepared for the printing for it so you can't you know we we had to we had to lock in the page count. Before the before it was even done, and luckily it was like a miracle. It was like the exact perfect three hundred pages. The content there, nothing, no padding, no no nothing. So um, that was good. I mean, the only thing, of course, was we we had to do it black and white because it's such a big book. It would have been, um, you know, a little 
over the top to to do to do it all color um, for that release. But uh, but I think we're we're pretty pleased with with how it came out. Another release that I really enjoyed was the the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Just a such an epitome of a masterpiece film for me, and one that I I kind of reveled at in film school and film studies, and uh, seeing it in an HD release. It was um, quite spectacular. Well, let me tell you, that's a film that I hadn't seen in years and years and years and years, and could barely <laughs> barely remember. You know, I mean, I was probably a teenager last time I saw it. Um, and I never had the, the, the Eureka or the, the Kino release that, that, uh, for, for whatever reason, or maybe I do and I just don't remember, but like, Oh no, I do. I did. I do. I do have the old, the old Eureka release, but, um, uh, to see it again, <clears throat> I mean, it was such a, an explosive experience. I mean that I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's a revelation and, and it's, it's all it's cracked up to be not just as some old chestnut of uh, film history classes or the, you know, some omnibus about silent movies. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful film and it's a powerful experience. And I got to tell you, I, when I was, when I saw it again, I saw it at, at the, at Berlin last year when it, the premiere of the, of the, um, this restoration and John Zorn was there playing live accompaniment. And it was the greatest, it was probably the greatest score I've, and he was him on, on the organ. It was at the Berlin uh, symphony hall. And the, it was, it was hair raising and it was the most psychodramatic uh, composition. And, 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 and it was so in tune with the undercurrents in that film that it was it was frightening and horrific and uh, without using not using it in a cliche sense. I mean, it was terrifying and and powerful. And um, we wanted so bad to have that to have the John Zorn piece, but he um, he only and we were we were we were in touch with him, and uh, he said that for him it was a one off thing, and he only wanted to have it as a live piece for that time only. And maybe he changed his mind at some point, but he didn't want to license it out. Um, he wanted it to be experienced purely as a live piece in real time in that setting, in that, um, in, in the, in the hall. And it's really too bad because if, if you weren't there, I mean, it was just, um, my, it's the I, it's the greatest silent score I've, I've ever heard. And I mean, I have, I have, and I have strong opinions about silent scores, by the way, <laughs> but um, yeah. we don't have to go into that, but. Uh... Mm, Tom, do you have any other questions? Um, not that I can think of, to be honest with you. Um, I think I've been kind of quite interested to just kind of sit back and kind of uh, listen to what Craig's had to say. To be honest, I think, I mean, sort of, I, think well, we I can, can kind of think of, I think we've managed to get to we can We can talk about any other films if you want. I mean, I'm, I'm just hanging out at home waiting, waiting oh, for the. Oh, well, I mean, I was going to say, actually, if you have a quick talk about the Oscars yeah, tonight, yeah, yeah. because well, obviously yeah. it seems entirely relevant. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I think this is the, I think it's the final year, right? I think it's the first time in a long time where I really could not care any less about them. Um, I was looking at the kind of the nominations for the best films, and I, you know, I was just a bit kind of meh on most of it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I think there's like. Boyhood, I think, is a great, a genuinely brilliant oh, I, I film. I, I, boyhood is, I think Boyhood's marvellous. Um, 
Yeah, so Boyhood and well, isn't Grand Budapest Hotel? I I, I really like. I hate that film. Huh? God no, I hate that film. That was one of my uh, that was I, that was one of the, one of the films. I, I went to go watch a group of people, and I was just like, I don't get what you lot have seen. I I can't I can't reconcile what you've just seen with what I've just seen because I was just like, get me out of here right now. <laughs> well, it happens. I mean, do you feel that way about all of Wes Anderson or just that one in particular? Um, just well, I think he's kind of he's, he's he's had his Lars von Trier moment with you. I used to get on quite well with Lars von Trier. And then he kind of made, I think it was Antichrist. And I was just like, oh, God. And I think this is this is what's happened with Wes Anderson. I think I'm just a bit like, right, I think me and you have parted company now. It's a, it pains me to say it. I've, I've parted company with Lars von Trier as well. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always willing to give somebody a second chance or a second shot. And, you know, even if um, I'm not into a filmmaker, I mean, if, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do a Lars von Trier film for MOC or something. Because, you know, I mean, there's... I think it, it, it's all, there's always value in creating a dialogue um, with films and with, uh, with an audience for films. Um, and, uh, but right now, yeah, there's, there's a few directors that I used to really, you know, that meant a lot to me. And now I just, I can't, uh, can't do it anymore. One of them is uh, Mikhail Hanukkah. Um, I think there's films of his I've always hated, like Funny Games, um, but I like I like the American funny games a little bit. I like there's things about it I like, but I still I still kind of hate it. Um, but yeah. uh, that's just that's just my opinion. But uh, yeah, I don't know. His new movie is called Flash Mob, which doesn't doesn't bode well. But uh, um, but I'm sure. I mean, if it has anything to do with the Flash Mob, I'm sure it'll be flashers in a mob, um, you know, in lots of. I don't know, fluids or whatever, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm a bit like of Michael Haneke films. I, I kind of, I have to be in the mood and where I don't, I'm not sure what that mood is or how often it comes, but I know I've only watched a few of his films like once before and this sort of just gone right, right. I think I can't really, you, know, you, you have to sort of tune into them a bit like, and more I was just like, Oh Jesus Christ. Yeah. Know, this, this is good, but it's, this is hard work to get. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm having a, an issue nowadays with those, with directors who have, like an aggressive tendency or like an overtly provocative tendency or like a shock tendency. And I don't, I don't, you know, I think that their intentions are in good faith. I think some are in bad faith, but um, yeah, I mean the, that extreme cinema thing, like I'm not, uh, I, I can't get into it. I mean, in terms of if it's, if it's for some reason and maybe I'm a hypocrite, but like, I, I like, you know, a lot of exploitation stuff that's, that's so, that's that shocks but i feel that it kind of knows it's it's trash at the same time i, I sort of i sort of like that but um you know but i feel, I feel like haneke's moved away from the like exploitation side of his of his films and mm-hmm. more to a more subtle approach where i can definitely appreciate what he's aiming for and i'm in tune to what he's uh, what he's doing um something like funny games i completely hate it i feel like it's too blunt for his own good mm-hmm. but when it comes to something like cachet or lamour um i'm i'm so on board with well, that I, one. I, I love i love actually cachet um maybe i just i have a, a, a massive crush on juliette binoche anyway so i like her <laughs> i like her in, in everything um Although I'll, I'll tell you a, a certain 
uh, DVD producer, uh, who you would probably know, but I won't name, said uh, said to me once at at uh, we were at Cannes, and um, I had just seen Certified Copy, and uh, it it or no, I had seen um, I had just seen um, I wasn't there for Certified Copy. I had seen I just seen like someone in love. We were talking about Karastami, and I said you know how how much I admired Certified uh, Certified Copy, and and uh, he said to me he said oh well. Uh, I couldn't stand it. He said Juliet Binoche was there just doing her Juliet Binoche shtick, and I didn't know what that was. But I'm on board with that shtick. Whatever you know, um, I'll watch anything. But um, but I, I really like cachet, and I you know I'm more. I have like personally, I have no time for. I mean, even the fact that like as soon as even the year before it was finished, they were doing. Um, was it uh, Les Films de Los Anges, I think, who, you know, we licensed Le Pont du Nord from and who have all the, most of the Eric Romare films. They had, uh, they had posters up for, for, for pre-sales before, before, while the film was in, still in production. And it was called Amour. And I knew even then that it was, um, it was not going to be a tender love story. And just, <laughs> it's just Hanukkah calling something Amour already telegraphs the fact that there will be, there will, there will be pain there will be there will be great yeah. suffering <laughs> of the highest order. <laughs> yeah, yeah like there w- there will be punishment. You know that was, and that's just you watching it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, yeah. So anyway, what what movies are, are you guys looking forward to in the next uh, year or so that are that are you know slated to come out or the directors are finishing them up or you know we'll see them at Cannes or Venice or wherever. Oh, I'd have to um, look at a list. And do you know what one that is really, really doing for me is Mad Max Fury Road, and I know that's probably the kind of the, the lowest of the no, low ground. It's gonna be great. It, it, it's just that every time I see that trailer, I'm like, I need to see this film like right now. And as much as I pretend I'm not that interested in it, I can't wait for Star Wars. And I know, I know, I'll put my hands up and say, you know, get over it. But yeah, I think that's kind of. I feel, I feel like there's an. I've kind of like this year. I kind of feel really excited about big films. It's not so much the smaller ones that are kind of on my mind. So no, like, I'm, I'm I'm stoked for Star Wars. I can't wait. I, I mean, I'm, I, uh, I hated the last three. Actually, I kind of liked Revenge of the Sith on this perverse, like, formal level, but it's still... I saw a bit of it again recently, and I just couldn't deal with it. But, um, I, I mean, like, whatever. I, I like the Star Wars movies. I grew up with them. They are what they are, and that's fine. But um, I really liked the teaser trailer, all seven shots of it or whatever, for The Force Awakens. I mean, you know, it's... It's cool, but and also I'm I'm friendly with uh, um, Ryan Johnson, who's directing Episode Eight and writing it. So that's kind of uh, you know a, a bias there, but uh, um, I'm sure it's going to be it's going to be awesome. So you know that's good, and and you know I love his films anyway. I mean I like I like Looper and Brick, and you know his Breaking Bad episodes. So, but uh, yeah. So Joaquin, did you find your list? Uh, I'm looking at a list now from movieinsider.com, um, but <laughs> uh, I can't really find anything yet. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, t- um, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you one that that I'm looking forward to. That's maybe my just off the top of my head, maybe my most anticipated film um, for this year, and that would probably be Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin that he's been making forever, and that's probably going to definitely premiere at, at Cannes. So I hope I hope I'm able to go this year and and see it. But um, I think that's going to be a great one. And uh, 
you know. And uh, yeah, and uh, speaking of which, I mean, Ho Shao Shen is somebody that we've been, uh, you know, trying to looking to get into the collection for a long time, and and there's just issues with with masters existing and and so on and so forth. And uh, it's a shame that you know there's certain directors that are contemporary masters and uh, a lot of their films that are like, you know, these kind of um, touchstones for so many cinephiles for the last 20 years are just, they've been absent on, on Blu-ray or even DVD for so long, or they've been in like terrible editions, like those, all of the Ho Shao Shen films. I mean, I have, I have everything, but, or I mean, everything that was ever out on disc, but from, from flowers of Shanghai backwards, I think, um, you know, I can't, I can't watch them anymore. I don't, I don't even know if they're, uh, anamorphic. I mean, they might just be letterboxed in a four, three frame and, and the puppet master, it was, was, I think, I don't think it was full frame. I think it was like I open mat. I think it, it was, it was cropped to four, three, which is a horror, but you know, um, I mean, I think he's, uh, for me, Ho is like the, definitely one of the greatest, uh, living living directors so have you um you probably heard of uh, the norwegian director joachim trier yes yes he's he's got a new film coming out now uh, louder than bombs his first english uh, english language film oh. and he's probably one of my favorite directors actually and that's not from a national standpoint mm-hmm. i usually hate norwegian films but he manages to capture certain authenticity that i feel is sorely lacking in norwegian films and i i'm really looking forward to what he's going to do with uh, a foreign language oh so is it is it uh, is it um funded through the uk or through the us or the memento films okay. uh, production uh, as well as uh, to norwegian companies um, and it casts Isabel Hubert, Gabriel Gabriel Byrne, and Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, okay, sounds good. Um, I heard that that Gabriel that movie that Gabriel Byrne was just in with. I think that was the one with um, Binoche. It, it, they heard it was awful. What was it? It's the one that just played at at, at Berlin. It's um, Cloud Sils Maria. Was it that? No, no, no. Oh. Um, I, 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 I'm, I still haven't seen that, but I'm looking. For, I'm a huge Asayas fan, and of course Binoche is in it, and. I love Kristen Stewart too, but, uh, what's, um, Oh, what is it? It's the, uh, uh, I'm going to Google it real quick. Wait, Gabriel Byrne, Julie Binoche. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was just at the Berlinale and, um, it is, is the Isabel Quaxe film. Nobody wants the night. I've heard it's, it's terrible. And I think she's a terrible filmmaker anyway, <laughs> but I mean, she made, she made that, uh, adaptation of Philip Roth's, the dying animal called elegy for whatever fucking reason it was called elegy. But, um, yeah, that's in Penelope Cruz and Ben Kingsley. And it's just a, a real bad movie. And, uh, I think people should just stop adapting Philip Roth. He's like my favorite living writer, but every movie there's, that's been made, uh, about his books is just total crap. And, uh, I don't know why he, I guess he, he options the rights out and then it's not up to him and I to see who gets to direct it, of course. And, uh, I don't think he cares either way, but, um, it's, it's just too, too bad that, uh, like, and I heard, like I heard American pastoral is in production now and, uh, Ewan McGregor is directing it. <laughs> like what? Like what? And they're like, Oh no, before it was going to be Philip Noyce. And it's like, well, that's 
Christ, you know, it's you never it's never like, yeah, it's going to be, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson tackling all the giants of American literature. Now, it's instead it's like Philip Noyce, Ewan McGregor, the auteur. So I see that uh, as he's a, he has a new film, Hubris, coming out. Um, hubris. Uh, yeah, hubris. Um about the Chicago underbelly, kind of a small time thieves. Well, it, it wasn't. What was what? That wasn't the one that um, that uh, Robert De Niro was was going to be involved in, and then the, the the funding got got pulled from it. It was in pre production, and it was ready to start shooting. It was um, what was it called? Uh, I forget. But but it, so what's I, I I don't even see it on on IMDb. So it's called Hubris. Uh, I found it on. Uh, Ion Cinema. Okay, here. I just. Oh, wait a minute. This is the the, the film. This is a, a 2013 Variety article. Uh, yeah, this was. Uh, no, I think I think that like as of two or three weeks ago, that the film is now uh, not happening anymore. Oh, okay. Was, but yeah. So. Um, I also see that Nicholas Winding Refn has a new film coming out, and I. I know that Tom, you hated only yeah. golf games, and I forgive you for that. But, <laughs> um, he has a new <laughs> film coming out, "I Walk with the Dead," and I, I don't know. I I do find him really interesting. Uh, I'm I'm usually, or I don't actually like his films uh, from Valhalla Rising and previous. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about Drive and Only God Forgives and. What was the other one? There's, uh, there's another one that he made that uh, that I really got along with. So is he is he uh, your fellow countryman too, or no? Uh, or sort of he's Danish and my father's Danish. So oh, okay. In in both of your your countries, do you get something that's equivalent to uh, TCM to Turner Classic Movies, or do you have any? Well, I've got I've got t- I've got I've actually got TCM, so did... but yeah, I've got Sky. I've got Sky and I've got there's loads of film channels. So do they show on on Sky in the UK? Do they show uh, the American TCM or is there a TCM UK? Because there's a TCM France. I know that. That's specific. Oh no, I don't know. To be honest with you, I know there's just a TCM HD. That's the only one I see. Okay, but I mean, it's not. Is it the American one where the host is Robert Osborne and uh, uh, Ben? Oh, I'm not sure. To be honest with you, Ben Mankiewicz. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's what I I have on in front of me now. But I I basically, if I don't have a, a movie in, or I'm not watching like a talk show, I have. TCM is like the background uh, of my life. <laughs> <laughs> in Norway, we have uh, TCM Nordic, huh. and there's no real host or anything. There's just movies playing one after another. Oh. But the real issue is that they play, um, when it's a 4-3 film, they play it uh, full screen, full version. But oh. when it's oh. a widescreen, they kind of just do the black bars up top, and then it's still black on the sides. And I, I can't, I can't oh, fathom no. why. That's nuts. Why did no, you do that? No. Oh, so, t- and t- it's it's not really HD. There's like <laughs> SD transfers. It's, it's TCM a, it's, is not in rotation. It's a casc- it's a cascade of lies. TCM yes. Nordic. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, the American TCM is extremely vigilant about protecting the aspect ratios. Um, they're always in the original one. I think there's only been one or two times where it's like it, where they've shown something that is just clearly cropped because it's either so rare and so obscure and a movie generally like mostly nobody has ever heard of or i mean even among like cinephiles and it's like usually totally inconsequential film anyway and then they'll they'll have it in some um 
perverted format, but that's that's like a point zero zero one percent um occurrence. Thank you for an excellent conversation, both of you. Oh thank you. thank you guys. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you I very much. It. So why don't we just say that we'll we're, we'll do this one one more time uh, again in the future and we're gonna discuss Rivette's Le Pont du Nord.